This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenschein. Despite life-altering trials in Bill Vosser's life, being abandoned by his father at age three, the painful biblical rantings of an apocalypse granny, and the effect of an alcoholic home, he was saved in many ways by an empty lot across the street, and he has now written his memoir, Days of Wonder. Author Bill Vossler, welcome to Main Street. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm pleased. Thanks, Craig. You have written thousands and thousands of articles and, and uh, more than a dozen books. Bill, what, in, what prompted you to write your memoir, which is really a, a wonderful chronology about your childhood, difficult at times, adventurous and imaginative at times? What prompted you to write the book? Um, I started writing a monthly column with the St. Cloud um, Times newspaper. And as I was writing some of those, uh, initially it was supposed to be about natural history. And then as things changed, um, I started doing some of the childhood things. And that was the trigger. Um, However, the difference is that uh, only six of the pieces in this book of 95 stories, Days of Wonder, were actually published before, so most of them are brand new. You you were born in Billings, um, Bill, um, but you also spent a great portion of your childhood in Wishick, North Dakota. Correct. Uh, at age three, uh, mom divorced my philandering dad and uh, came back to Wishick, where I grew up through age 18. This is a book that is full of a childhood's imagination, a child's wonder, his, also his ability to cope with a lot of tough things. I've condensed it down into eight words, Bill, and I'd like to throw those words at you and have you respond about um, what you've written about, um, the issues and the people that I'm going to talk about. And the first I think we need to visit about is your father. Yes. Um, after leaving, um, I saw him only twice more. He abandoned us when I was three. I saw him two times after that, when I was six and when I was nine, both times for about 10 minutes and both times on the way to school. Um, I cried when I read those, Bill. I just did. I, it was just really impactful to me. Yeah. It, I cry every time I read those as well. And what I took away from it actually was a positive that I wanted him to come back so badly that... I created stories, I wrote stories, I thought stories about him coming back, about him smiling, about him saying he loved me, and also the negative stories that he had not come back, and so there was proof. And I think that is part of why my imagination developed as it did. You desperately wanted a father person, a father figure in your life. Exactly. And I was lucky. I grew up in Wishick where... It Takes a Village is true and real. When we came back from uh, Billings, mom was hired at the bank by um, Walter Seiler, and these people throughout the town just really watched over us. We had mentors, um, John Ackerman, who every time he'd see me, he'd say, what's your name? What's my name? And uh, <laughs> now you know who I am. I mean, it was, it was fantastic. You spent a good deal of time hiding from some of those folks too, Bill, in the book. I did. Um, there were The religious part was really very difficult because we were told constantly what rotten people we were, that we were born with this natural sin, and that when uh, Apocalypse Granny, as we called her... Yeah, my, let's talk about her right now. My step-grandmother was uh, Mary Fetzer, and uh, my mom remarried her son and... After the marriage, one day we're sitting and eating, and the door crashes open, and here is my step-grandmother, Mary. And I didn't know who that was. And right. She has a Bible in her hand, and she starts thumping it and uh, reading from it and talking about how um, mom had made her son, um, um, I a, can't think of the word. An adulterer. An adulterer, because in the Bible, that's what it says. If you marry and a, a divorced woman you become an adulterer. And then she also talked about the sins of the father are visited upon the children unto the fourth generation. And and so every time she would come over, and in the beginning, this was common. She would go through both of those. She would read books, read verses from the Bible. 
She would read about adultery. She would read about the uh, children and the uh, effects of the father, which I knew meant my rotten father. But then she would also talk about the end of the world. It was always something that was the end of the world. Whatever um, happened in the world, when there were earthquakes, she'd come over and smash the door open, and she would stand there and read about uh, something from usually a revelation about earthquakes or about blood of the moon. Mm -hmm. There's blood on the moon. Um, It just went on and on. Next word I have, Bill, is baseball. And I'm going to add another word into that in vacant lot. Um, You talk about baseball actually quite a a lot in your book. Yes. um, It was something that we did every day that we possibly could. I mean, I look at kids today and I just feel sorry for them that they aren't doing all of that. We started playing baseball and eventually we were hitting the ball too far across the street uh, off houses. So we knew we needed a diamond of our own. And when I came upon that idea, I thought, you know what, we're going to have a stadium. And I had all these plans on how to build an actual stadium with seats and a outfield fence. What we ended up having was we had a pitcher's mound. We had a dugout. We had a place for people to warm up. We had a fence at the back behind the plate to uh, catch the ball. And um, we cut the lawn for baselines. And we just played an awful lot of baseball. And kids from all over town came to play. But, you know, it didn't take many kids for us to play. Four, five, six, eight kids, we'd we'd be playing. You knew you were going to be on the Yankees someday. Oh, my gosh. I was positive I would take Mickey Mantle's place in center field and uh, discovered that, uh, no, that wasn't uh, a possibility when uh, I started playing high school baseball and uh, I was not any good. I was fast. That was all. But I didn't have any talent. I couldn't throw. I pitched slow, slower and slowest. (laughs) And we only won one game during my four years of high school uh, baseball. And, And there's a story behind that, a very quick one with um, about 40 years later, I got a phone call, and um, Doug Kramer says, Hi, Bill, this is Doug. Do you mean, remember that base hit I hit over second base um, to score you from second base um, in this game against Napoleon? I says, Of course I remember that. It's the only game we ever won in four years. Uh, so, uh, you, you were adventurous. Um, I think that might be an understatement. Tell us how you kind of thieved your way into copy scorecards at the school? I was working at the school with the janitor, and I would go back and forth as we cleaned, and I'd see how teachers were using the ditto machine. And so when I wanted to make uh, score sheets for our baseball playing, um, I went in one day. I knew the back door was always open to the school, high school. So I went in and uh, found some ditto sheets and took them home and made scorecards and then sneaked back in one day and um, copied. And it took a little bit for me to figure out how to copy them with the copy machine, and I was worried, you know, that somebody's going to catch me at it. And I thought they were going to. Um, It's in the book about how I was scared as heck, had to hide behind the copy machine as I heard footsteps. But the footsteps went up the other stairs and not the downstairs to where I was. You had a paper route. You delivered the Minneapolis Star Tribune, and you didn't want a paper route when it was given to you, so to speak, but it became your pathway to exploration and adventure. Absolutely. And, you know, we delivered the Minneapolis Tribune, the Minneapolis Star, the uh, Grit, and the Fargo Forum. Um, And I could get out and be alone and the town was quiet, and I could think what I wanted to think, and I could see all these wonderful, beautiful things in nature. Um, And then meeting with the customers, uh, which leads to another interesting part. And, you know, Wishik was a town of no stories. Nobody ever told a story about their past. One time, uh, years later, when we were at a uh, my younger half-brother's wedding, all of mom's siblings and their spouses were there sitting around on a bed in a motel. 
And they were totally quiet. And afterwards I said to mom, what, what was that about? And she says, well, what's there to talk about? And that's kind of what the whole sense was in town. Nobody ever told a story about their past. So that was part of my incentive about writing this book to get some of these stories out. Railroads come into play in your book and a child's exploration of um, walking the rails and almost getting into trouble, not once, but twice. Yes. Um, I love to walk out to the minnow uh, pool where I would catch minnows and just, I would have fun with minnows, you know, watching them and then all of a sudden jump at them and see them scatter and wondering how in the heck can they do that without running into each other? <laughs> um, but I would catch minnows and then we'd use them to fish. And as I was coming back one day with this can full of minnows, there was water in the fields and I was scared of water and I couldn't swim and I didn't know how deep it was. I mean, I really wasn't thinking. I was probably 11 years old or so. And I felt the thrum of the train on the rails and realized, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I can't stand just alongside the tracks because I'd be sucked under. And so I knew what I had to do was run back towards the train and I did. I ran as fast as I could. I threw the water away. And just before the train arrived, I dived off onto the highway. Just lucky. You raised chickens at your house, Bill. You, um, were, you were asked to guard them one day, you recount, and had a little fun with maybe rocks and a BB gun. But maybe it didn't yes. turn out to be fun. <laughs> yes, we and we did this many times. I guess I didn't make that clear. That was something that our stepdad had us do, watch the chickens so they wouldn't jump over the fence or fly up to the top of the fence and jump over because some had actually done that. So we're there bored and with my friend Tom Klein, and we start thinking, well, what can we do? And we started throwing rocks, and we thought, no, my stepdad will figure that out. So we said, okay, let's get BBs. And we had slingshots, and we started shooting them, and we eventually crippled every chicken, about a hundred of them. And when my stepdad came home, he said, you know, why in the heck are they all out in the sun? And I said, um, um, they're sunbathing. And uh, he got angry, which he should have. And we went out and had to uh, get the chickens and, and uh, eventually had to butcher all of them. He also went over to my friend's place a block away and spanked him as, <laughs> as well as he spanked us. The only time I was ever spanked by him. You raised potatoes and didn't necessarily look forward to that each year. Yes. I, you know, it, originally this book had a subtitle of uh, trying to avoid work. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about that so, often. Yes, I do, um, which is interesting because I have a real work ethic now. But, yeah, we had to do all this potato work all the time of planting them, of hoeing, getting the potato bugs off, then of using the hoe to clean off the uh, weeds and then to dig the potatoes up. And we went through this whole phase every year. And I could just never forget about it because our garden, which was the largest in town, was uh, on the way to school or on the way to uptown. It was a block away from our place. And so I could never forget about that. And then we'd have to, in the winter, clean out the uh, potato bin and there were always rotten ones in there and oh my gosh that was awful because you'd go down there and pick up the, the rotten ones uh, by accident and then you'd have to clean all of this up and it was awful. We're visiting with Bill Vossler. He's written a memoir, Days of Wonder and Bill there are dozens and dozens and dozens of stories we're not going to get to all of them but I want to reflect on what you hope people get from this book. And here's why I'm asking the question. I look back at my childhood, and I think I had maybe as much freedom as you did. I did not have your imag imagination at that, at, at, at that young age. But kids today are so very different and structured and protected in many, many ways. What do you hope people gain from your memoir? There are several things. Number one, I think, is that how It Takes a Village works and how that saved me, that and spending time in, in the empty lot, which I'll talk about a little later. But I had mentors who watched over me. Um, I was also, second, lucky to have places to turn for refuge when life became too difficult. 
It was a small town, 1,288 people, Germans from Russia, or as I call them now, Germans from the Ukraine, because uh, that's what where they were from. The uh, In 1763, Queen Catherine of Russia, who was German, Prussian, uh, uh, laid out a manifesto that said that uh, she wanted people to come into Russia, which would be into uh, the Ukraine. And in exchange, people got these incredible perks, free transportation to the settlement, no taxes for 30 years, interest-free loans for 10 years, self-rule, religious freedom, no military service for their children. Um, And within four years, more than 6,000 families, 27,000 people, including my forebears, emigrated 1,500 miles to the Ukraine Volga. And each family received 75 acres, a wagon, plow, horses, tools, sod house. But life was dis- difficult. Within 10 years, 4,000 of those original Germans had lost their lives or been sold into slavery mm. by the Kyrgyz, Kalmuka, or Bashkirs. So there were places of refuge. Uh, the roof of the chicken coop in the backyard until my dad, stepdad figured out where <laughs> we were. The, the empty lot across the street, which had this ravine where I spent just tons of time dib- digging up fossils that I w- was positive were Tyrannosaurus rex bones. And uh, when I I sent them into the Smithsonian, uh, which um, a teacher must have told me that uh, they would identify those fossils free of charge. And so I found out uh, distal end of metapodial of equus complicatus, (laughs) an ancient horse. And there were um, bison and camels and all these things from the Ice Age uh, in that lot. Then I could go over to my Grandpa Fetzer's backyard, my step-grandpa. He could not speak English, and every time he'd see me, he'd clap me on the shoulder, and he'd say, Ya da Billy. And we would just sit there, and and, uh, he was working on his uh, wheel, sharpening things. Mm -hmm. And what I always thought was interesting, he would sharpen a knife occasionally, and then he'd look at the house. And I knew he and Grandma did not get along. (laughs) So I had my imagination thinking, oh, my gosh. Then there was the baseball diamond that we built. So that was another part of a place where I could go and then delivering newspapers. Um, Bill, do you still have that 1881 Indian head penny? I do. Yes, I do. I I sold off most of my other coins, but I kept that one. What other things did you find when you were young that you kept? Um, Stamps. That's really about mm-hmm. all, I guess. Well, some some of the notes I took when I was a kid. Um, I don't have any of the short stories I wrote, but I was amazed to find out one of my church mates said, oh, you used to bring short stories to church all the time, and you kind of pushed us to read them while they were giving the sermon. So uh, that was kind of a curious thing. And, you know, my life in that town was filled with unique, even alien situations, and I think that's another thing I wanted to point out to people that, you know, my grandpa stole a horse um, and ended up in prison. Um, my dad was, uh, well, the book begins the first time my father died. Mm-hmm. And that tells a, a story. My mom was divorced in 1949. Um, my dad married eight times. My wife's Nikki, has, always says, I wonder how many times he was divorced because uh, he w- was married in six different cities. He was a prisoner of war during World War II. Um, and then in growing up, I did things that nobody else in town was doing. And I, I just thought they were normal, you know, to build a baseball stadium if you wa- uh, wanted one, to dig fossils out, to uh, get more library books than you were supposed to. You I read. There. Bill, you read an yes. awful lot. I did. Uh, I was trying to think of which books I read the most. And Ray Bradbury, uh, Steinbeck, um, Carter of Mars, uh, some of the um, Tarzan books, a uh, lot of adventure stuff. And uh, I'd always wanted to be a writer, so that all got me started. And secondarily, what got me started was just walking across the street to my grandpa and grandma Fetzer's, where everything had two names. You know, there was no more window. It was a fenster. Um, it, trees were bombs. It, it was You had to listen to the German and the English, and that just increased my uh, interest in words, and which led to me becoming a writer. Bill, was this book hard for you to write? Because you do talk about difficult things, the difficult relationship with your 
father, um, with your grandmother. Um, other tough, tough times when you were a child and other really great times. Was this cathartic for you? Exactly. That was the key. And I realized that when I went to a adult children of alcoholics group and people were talking about their lives and I realized I could talk about it, but it had writing the book was cathartic. It, it cleansed me pretty much. When I met Nikki and got married, she said, you know, everything you write has your dad in it. And uh, since then, that has changed. I am much more comfortable with it. Still miss him, obviously, but... How yeah. long did it take you to put this book together, Bill? And you have written many other books as well. Yeah, uh, this took me about five years off and on. And the last three years, let's say last two and a half years, um, the reason I could publish so many things, I had magazines I worked regularly for. Uh, Toy Farmer, for instance, I published something every month in their magazine for 27 years. Uh, Farm Collector, every month for 14 years. Uh, Gas Engine Magazine, every month for 10 years. And I finally decided I wanted to get out of that tractor and farm toy field. Um, and that's when I really started being serious about the book. What was the hardest part for you to write in this book? Um, my father's stories, mm -hmm. the, the story of, uh, you know, I was actually only five years old at the time. No, I was six, I guess I was in second grade. Um, him stopping me on that snowy day and going into school and how I just was mentally lost, um, after he left, you know, he, he left and, you know, didn't even say goodbye. Just said, oh, we got to get going. It's getting stormy. Are you still writing, Bill? Absolutely. I write every day. I have since the ninth grade, uh, very few days that I've not. What's next? Not written. What will we see from you next? I'm working on a piece for North Dakota Living on why North Dakota, uh, why do doctors come to small North Dakota towns and stay there? What have you learned um, about that? It's really interesting that it's very difficult, but uh, the University of North Dakota has a program where they send out uh, their medical students to small North Dakota towns for a month, and they get to see what it's like. And I just talked to one, uh, Dr. Bob Grossman, last night, and he said, you know, that's what sold him, although he was a North Dakotan. But he went to Hedinger, North Dakota, and he said, I just found out how wonderful the doctors and nurses and people were. And then he'd go to little satellite places into Weibo, Minnesota and South Dakota. And he said the people there were just so grateful. It was I knew this is what I wanted to do. Bill, we're going to take a break here, and I, I hope that you can stay with us. We're visiting with Bill Vossler, author of Days of Wonder. And we want to meet Irvin, who is a major um, figure in this book. Please stay with us. The news is next. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. The House has passed the budget bill for the university system. The vote on House Bill 1003 was 78 to 15. Among other things, the bill freezes tuition at the 11 public colleges and universities, with the exception that certain programs can still increase tuition costs. Bismarck Republican Representative Mike Nathy chairs the Education and Environment Division of the House Appropriations Committee. He says this is the first time in 28 years that tuition could be frozen. We find ourselves in a wonderful, envious financial position right now, and we're talking about using that position for tax relief and new programs and, and helping uh, our citizens of the state. Well, because of that wonderful financial position, we are now able to help freeze college tuition to help our students, to help those families that support those students for the next two years. So I just want to emphasize that, and I want to say thanks to everybody in this chamber because we are in the financial position that we are because of a lot of you that are here. The measure will now go to the state Senate for further work. The House has approved a carve-out of the state's anti-corporate farming law to allow limited animal agriculture investments. The vote was 70 to 24. Supporters say it is not an effort to overturn the corporate form, uh, farming law, but it is an attempt to grow feedlots and dairy operations. Baldwin Republican Representative Sue Ann Olson says this could help revive smaller towns. If we can use this animal agriculture to bring back at least some of those smaller communities, bring some vibrancy back, um, that's a huge win uh, because otherwise we just risk um, you know, a further decline. Mandan Republican Representative Dawson Hawley is a dairy farmer. He opposes the bill. 
There are no processors in the state of North Dakota that a new dairy farm could sell their milk to. None. There is milk already leaving the state. Where is that milk going to go to? We are the only state in the country with our own bank. Why are we not offering um, incentives for our current family farms and new family farms to grow? The measure will now be considered in the Senate. And fishery biologists say this could be a tough year for winter kill across the state. Heavy snow in in December can increase winter kill on marginal waters because it prevents oxygen from being produced. North Dakota Game and Fish outreach biologist Jim Job says dissolved oxygen testing is going on statewide. Our fisheries biologists go out multiple times a year and take uh, what they call dissolved oxygen level tests where they can drop something down and test uh, uh, the oxygen parts per million. They're doing that all winter. You know, we're starting to see signs of some of the lakes being susceptible to to fish kills. The testing also checks for water clarity, temperature, and pH levels. Game and Fish officials say there is a plan in place to restock lakes severely impacted. If you suspect winter kill, you are urged to contact the Game and Fish Department at 701-328-6300. That's 701-328-6300. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine, and we're continuing our conversation with author Bill Vossler. He's written a memoir, Days of Wonder, about his time primarily in Wishick, North Dakota. Bill, tell me about Irvin. Who was he? Irvin was a, a friend who was 24 years older. When he was a kid, when he was 12 or 13, he fell off the top of a loaded hay rack and hit his head on the side of the rack. And he was 12 years old after that uh, for the rest of his life. Uh, excellent musician. One time when the uh, Evangelical United Brethren Church, which I grew up in, and the Congregational, which Irvin grew up in, united for a service, my mom was there and she said, I heard this beautiful tenor voice. And when I turned around here, Irvin was singing. Uh, we became friends playing basketball and uh, playing baseball. He lived about a block and a half away from me, so every time I'd go to the baseball diamond, I'd see him uh, or see his house. Um, Really an interesting character, very emotional, very – I learned a lot from him, learned how to be a friend. And and that was a challenge for you because there was a point that you write about in the book maybe when you may not have been his best friend. Absolutely. The – I was ashamed of him because, you know, when girls would come by or, or something of that sort, and I was talking to Irvin or spending time with him, and Irvin would, you know, be Irvin. And you could tell he was mentally challenged. And I was thinking, oh, they're going to think less of me because of it. Um, but eventually I learned uh, it's just the opposite. You close your book with a chapter called Return to Whale Stadium. Could you read that for us? I would love to. One June day in my 40s, clutching an ancient glove with a baseball tucked in its pocket, I made a pilgrimage to the stadium we built when I was in my early teens. Three decades since I'd seen Whale Stadium. Holding a couple of photos, one with a curled edge, I shuffled through the matted outfield grass toward the listing backstop and the collapsed dugout, a surge of memories welling up, hitting home runs, fielding hard-hit balls, throwing strikes, flinging out baseball lingo like, we want a pitcher, not a glass of water, or humchaka, baby. I looked at one of the photos, several of us standing near second base, bats laid against our shoulders with gloves looped over them. We are leaning against each other in an acceptable show of that powerful friendship, which comes to most males only once in their lifetimes, during junior high. We are all dreamy-eyed in the midst of that one perfect summer of playing baseball. With my foot, I poked in the Maravarch weeds for second base, the pitcher's mound, home plate. Then I heard rustling behind me, and an angry voice cried, Hey, you get out of here, right now. Hey, he said again, go, 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 go away. I turned, and a stooped old man with white hair, wearing an engineer's cap, hobbled towards me, glaring. He brandished a bat and held a ball in his stiff mitt. For a moment, I was taken aback. Then I said, Irvin, it's me, Bill. The fire of time had left only ashes of the man he had been. He stopped. 
His roomy eyes widened, and a great smile creased his lined face. Biddy, he choked. Biddy, yeah, Biddy, grasping my hand like a lifeline. But do you remember the time I hit a home run off you? He, he, he. Yeah, Irvin, I said, slipping an arm around his shoulder. I remember. We walked for a moment, arms around each other's shoulders, the comfortable cloak of long-ago friendship slipping over us once again as we surveyed the ruin of years. And do you remember? Ooh, he said, I remember. His eyes widening. He covered his crotch with a hand. You hit that one good. He, he, he. You hit that one good, Biddy. As we neared home plate, Irvin became agitated. Yeah, but Biddy, he said in a sad voice, you don't come back. Don't you remember? Always friends, always together. He raised a finger in our friendship salute, and I raised mine too, tears filling our eyes. Irvin said, you said that. I remember. Why don't you come to visit me? His words burned my heart. In my busy life, I rarely ever thought of Irvin, even though I'd learned a lot about life from him. I hung my head. During the long silence, I struggled with tears. Finally, I shrugged and in a whispery voice said, Even though I haven't come home in a long time, Irvin, I come back here at Whale Stadium with you. Anytime I want, up here, I touched my temple. Or with this photo, which I showed. Ooh, he said, Randy and Jim and me. Yeah, but Biddy, sometimes I walk over here and stand, and, 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 and I see us playing baseball. His eyes were far away. You and me and Randy and Ronnie and Jim playing baseball. Up here, he pointed at his head. I see us too. My eyes were moist. I hugged his wide, sturdy shoulders and we embraced fiercely. Me too, I said, muffled. Me too. After a moment, I took his bat, feeling its good, cool smoothness in my hands, and walked toward home plate. I scuffled with the toe of my wingtips and cleaned it off. I turned and motioned Irvin towards the pitcher's mound. His eyes lit up. Hum, chucka! Chuck it in here, baby, I said. We don't have forever to get ready for Yankee tryouts, do we? Or, 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 the d- d- Dodgers, Irvin said, as he slowly wound up. The book is Days of Wonder, a memoir by Bill Vossler. Bill, where can people find the book? It's only online as of yet. I'm trying to get it in bookstores. But if you check my website or my Facebook page, Bill Vossler, I have information there on how you can get that book and my other book of essays, Nature's Way. Bill, thank you for joining us on Main Street. Thank you so much for having me, Craig. We'd like to thank the North Dakota Council on the Arts for supporting arts programming along with our members and other sources here on Prairie Public. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine. More than 45 million Americans have an addiction to drugs or alcohol. 94% of them never get treatment. Ashley Thornburg explores a program at the Ridge Treatment and Reentry Center that takes a holistic approach to recovery. The Ridge Recovery Center is an unremarkable building in a nondescript neighborhood. Clients come here for the usual addiction treatment options, like working with licensed addiction counselor and director of clinical services, Tom Fry. Right now, I just do a lot of groups and a lot of counseling and a lot of assessments. But the Ridge wanted to offer a more holistic approach to recovery. Try not to reach with with the body, with the shoulders, right? Keep the shoulders pulled down and let's reach with those fingertips. Once a week, clients can pop into a yoga class with Sarah Van Ostrand. Now you feel your scapulas pulling away from your spine. It's exactly what you want. Yoga and addiction share some surprising overlaps. Notably, the impact on dopamine, the feel-good chemical that comes from our brain. You know, addiction is a, is a mind-body kind of phenomenon. 
people develop a, a dependence on a substance physically that has a huge effect on their mental health, you know. Homeostasis of dopamine is a key indicator of health and dysfunction in the regulation of dopamine can lead to addiction. This from the paper, Role of Yoga in Management of Substance Use Disorders, a Narrative Review, as found on the National Institutes of Health website, that looks at yoga and its ability to regulate our dopamine levels. And let's unify our practice today with just one breath together. And so just like deep breathing um, is an antidote for anxiety, right? A panic attack. You can go through deep breathing. So two yoga poses have the same sort of uh, neurotransmitter enhancement, you know, that can help help the brain and help the mind and uh, create calm and control. Let's give our bodies what it needs today, and that is a moment to be still. My highs were manic, without control, and then I would self-isolate. That's Cindy Jones. She's celebrating her second stint with sobriety. I would binge drink because that would make me feel like I was wanted or I can entertain everybody and just have a blast and everybody's going to do this and do that. But once I get home or whatever or nobody's around anymore, that's when my mental health, my mental illness, my depression, everything starts to, to get me. It starts talking me into doing things that I would never do. She fought hard to get here. The self-harming, the cutting or just feeling so low that I would drink and drink and drink. I've tried to overdose on medications and then drink more. Jeez, I thought I was a rock star. The road to recovery is not exactly a straight, easy stroll. If I didn't end up in the ER, I'd sleep for days. Addiction professionals know this disease to be mean. Success rates in treatment centers is pretty low. In part because of the stigma that surrounds the long-held false belief that addiction is merely a lack of will. I grew up in a small town in Iowa. I just found out like five years ago there was an uncle in town that I never even knew. Why didn't I know that? Because he was an alcoholic Mm -hmm. and he was a town drunk. But the shame, you know, that always hit me that, you know, how could I not know my own uncle who was there? Mm Cindy's first stretch with sobriety lasted many years, but addiction came back with a vengeance. I don't even know what my blood level was. When I went to my mom's, saw it in her eyes and in her face that it wasn't disappointment in her face. It was that she was scared. This time, it was Cindy who wanted sobriety. It was so freeing to ask her for help. I'll never forget that day. Let's roll ourselves back up. A little scoochy poo. <laughs> she go. really took to yoga. In class, I would tell everybody to be quiet if they were screwing around because I was busy. She was soon a regular. When you're doing yoga, you feel it. Well, first it hurts. <laughs> Sarah would always say, don't do something you can't. You don't need to push yourself. It was so relaxing just to know that you could be I'm going to say broken and doing something that's so relaxing. And then you just kind of worked your way through it. And the next time you're stronger and the next time after that, you're even more stronger and you're more Zen-like. But it wasn't just the yoga. There was no judgment. It was something about instructor Sarah. Seeing her now still makes me feel calm. She just has that about her and she brings that out in us. And it's then you just feel... At peace. Some of that, Sarah says, is straight up just her personality. I feel an attachment to those in need and to those who are searching for change and for help. But like most things, there's more to the story. Though she was never an addict, she has gotten into trouble, a couple of DUIs and some experimenting with cocaine. It helps me be able to relate. And I'm very open and honest with them. I look at my peer support that I give in a a different light. I never got caught in the addiction. Um, 
I do have an, an addiction to birthday cake flavored Oreos, but that's a good addiction, which I believe everyone can have in moderation. But telling them how I overcame my cocaine and alcohol usage, I was just able to find exercise and fitness a number one priority. And while I was still in my fitness realm, still doing cocaine and, and drinking alcohol, it wasn't working out for me anymore. It was creating more damage to my health and to my to my mental health more than anything. I just knew it had to stop. So I, I told myself, like, I, I can't do this anymore. And I slowly weaned myself off. Now I have to lean forward farther, right, to get your feet up. That's what most people are scared of. <laughs> Let's not be scared, okay? And I found that I loved being sober. I was happy sober. You know, weekends would come and I would get, I would be so productive. I would get things done. I was able to go to craft fairs. I, I was going roller skating. I was doing these activities that usually I would be high for or hung over for, and I just would not do them. So I was experiencing life and to be able to express that to someone that it can be done and it does start with them and their want to change. She uses that background to structure her classes. I love the giggles. <laughs> I do. <laughs> that means you're trying so hard. <laughs> I love it. Though that's not a word she would use. I have no agenda walking in. I feel the vibe of the room. Most yoga teachers can pretty quickly figure out what their students need. Sarah starts out with a few gentle moves. And let's unify our practice today with just one breath together. And then assesses as she goes. If I'm hearing chatters, if I'm hearing people wrestling around, I might get them into an arm balance. And then that's kind of where I, I start to hear silence, that people are more, more focused, they're more involved. Next thing you know, class is, is ending on a more gentler note, and we're high-fiving, and it's a whole vibe. <laughs> <laughs> that high-fiving helps Sarah know she's on the right path. What I like to see is the students that continuously keep showing up. That to me says I'm doing what I what I came here to do and what I want to do. And I, I want to give. I want to show. I want to connect. And having us all together, I feel that's a, a breakthrough in itself. And then your body's a teeter-totter, right? Head down, butt up. Teet with the tot. That's we, no, we don't say that. I don't know. I don't know what I just said. It's Teat with the tat. And Sarah would push me, yes, you can, Cindy. And then we'd joke and have fun, and that, that's what was cool about it. As for Cindy Jones, her struggles with substances are now struggles with poses. Sitting there grunting and dying. But unlike with drugs and booze, she still likes herself after yoga class. And I didn't want to be done. It's an amazing feeling to set boundaries. And she's already applying what she learned to help other people on their sobriety journeys. Being a peer support, working with addicts, um, there's just so much out there. And I knew it was there. I just didn't know how to go about it. And with the support here, it's, it's been a game changer. Take a knee to a tricep. Knee to a tricep, you're in a tripod. If you feel good in your core, you're like, I did not eat pizza today. I have core strength. <laughs> then kick your legs. Yes, just like that. For Main Street, I'm Ashley Thornburg. You can learn more about the Ridge Recovery Center at ridgend.org. That's R-I-D-G-E-N-D.org. We've also linked a paper from the National Institute of Health and Yoga and Addiction Recovery on our website. Dakota Datebook is next. Hear what it means to be Bosnian. A lot of people from Bosnia was displaced all around the world. A lot of us returned. I was a refugee for almost nine years. Update your image of Wales. Chapel going, coal mine working. That's all gone. It's all in the past. It's a myth. And enjoy the incredible art of Spain. It's just what you may expect. A surreal experience on the next Travel with Rick Steves. That's coming up Wednesday at 8 Central, 7 Mountain. Jesse Veter of Watford City is a writer, columnist, musician, and rancher. Here's her essay, Heritage Cooking. 
Have you ever had cream noodles? Well, it is what it says it is, only add potatoes and onions fried up in boiling butter. Then hand make some thick noodles and add heavy whipping cream, and there you have it, cream noodles. These are the things we eat in January, Lord save us. Carb-filled white things with cream and butter, give or take a potato or some chicken, add a side of sausage, and save the consequences for later. And if we're not eating it, we're planning for the next excuse of a celebration and a reason to cook it up. I hope we all have dishes like this. Little indulgences and reminders of our childhood in our mother's or grandmother's kitchens. Cream noodles is that for my husband. His mom was raised by her grandmother in the middle of the state, who still spoke German in the house and taught her granddaughter the subtle art of adding the milk to the egg so that it measures out properly with the flour. Turns out there's a fine line between a noodle and a dumpling, and I may have never known any of this if I hadn't started dating her son. I wouldn't have known about homemade cream peas either and how well they go with mashed potatoes and pork chops. And thereby, I would have been missing out on another winter meal staple that puts my husband front and center in the kitchen with me following behind as his cheerleader and potato peeler. It would have been a small tragedy. The important role that food plays in the foundation of our lives is no big revelation here. It's been studied and milled over. The poetry and the music about it has been written. But the fact that one of my mom's favorite dishes is now my husband's cream noodles, so much so that he made them for her on her birthday, is a sweet little unexpected connection that the two of them share. And my husband, he takes the task seriously. If he gets in a bind or has a question, it's a great excuse to call his own mother. And it's even more fun for him to call her after a successful meal. I don't know how many times they've gone over the stories attached to these heritage dishes or the subtle ways they've gone wrong or right over the years. It doesn't matter. It's a countless point of connection, and it's special. Last month before Christmas, my husband took the girls to his parents' place for a baking day, and on the agenda was Kuchen, a German heritage custard-filled dessert. They made up pans and pans of it to give away and store in the freezer for company or for a special occasion. Last weekend, I took one out of the freezer when our pastor came to visit, and let me tell you, having that dessert on the ready gave me an unjustified sense of ranch wife confidence that I needed in that moment. Now, it's confidence I didn't earn, but it helped balance the amount of shame-filled panic power cleaning I did in preparation for his visit. Maybe someday this Scandinavian bread girl will learn the art of making kuchen the way I learned the art of making nefla. But these days I'm just appreciating the fact that my daughters are interested in being involved in what's going on in the kitchen. The other night my seven-year-old took a bite of her hot dish and declared, again for the 50th time in two days, that she wanted orange chicken for supper tomorrow. Because six months ago we had lunch at a Chinese food restaurant in the mall in the food court in the big town, and she's been searching for that high ever since. Now if we lived in the big town, this request would be simple to fill, but our nearest Chinese food restaurant is 60 miles away, and that's a little far for delivery. So because she hasn't let up, my quest to recreate her orange chicken experience starts today. I'm telling you now, I'm not equipped, but I guess that's what the internet's for. I'm aiming for minimal disappointment. I'll let you know how it goes. If all else fails, we have a good excuse to make cream noodles. Thanks, Jesse. That makes me hungry. Dakota Datebook is next. Support for Prey Public is provided by North Dakota United, an organization of over 11,000 education and public employees serving the public every step of the way. Information available at ndunited.org. This is Dakota Datebook for February 21st. Unusual and even bizarre events can pop up during sessions of North Dakota's legislature. In 1890, during the state's first legislative session, the House of Representatives convened one day at 7 o'clock in the morning. Several members overslept, requiring a call of the House to compel their attendance. The sergeant-at-arms went out to rouse the missing members. He reportedly fired blanks from a revolver to get one representative out of bed. Another member was roused by a large cannon firecracker. Another event in 1893 involved a Senate committee investigating newspapers for slanderous articles that tied lawmakers to blackmail. The committee even queried a Fargo newspaper correspondent about his reporting. In 1903, a 60-mile-per-hour wind smashed windows and blew away part of the Capitol's roof during the opening day of the legislative session. A roof cornice smashed into a brick chimney and dislodged hundreds of bricks that came within inches of crashing through an open hole in the roof. They could have smashed 
through the third-floor ceiling onto the desks of the House Speaker and clerks. Outside, the wind even lifted and carried pedestrians. In 1945, the House deadlocked on electing a Speaker, prompting a group of lawmakers to go to Bowman to bring back a representative who was ill at home and unable to walk. He was wheeled into the House chamber in a wheelchair to break the day-old tie. And on this date in 1953, lacking a gavel, the President Pro Tem of the Senate used a stenographer's high-heeled shoe as a gavel to bring the Senate to order. The Senate lacked enough senators to conduct its business, so Senator R. M. Stribel of Fessenden wrapped the shoe again, recessed the Senate, and returned the shoe to its owner, Dagny Olson. The moment became a national news story, with headlines from Ohio to Washington to New Mexico, declaring, gavel-wielder well-heeled, and Senate is slippered into short session. In 1983, the House Speaker set a dress code for reporters and photographers, citing lawmakers' concerns about the sloppy dress of the media. The dress code to be allowed on the House floor was a suit and tie, a sport coat and turtleneck shirt, or a sport coat and sweater for men, and a dress or suit or slacks for women. The Speaker's dress code was not popular among the media. Today's Dakota Datebook was written by Jack Dura. I'm Merrill Pepcorn. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding by Humanities North Dakota. Hollywood producer Dee Dee Gardner has delivered a string of acclaimed movies in the past few years, including Selma, 12 Years a Slave, and this year's Oscar contenders, Women Talking and Blonde. I think I'm interested in the idea of complicity. What we know when we know it, when we admit to knowing it. Making movies that make an impact on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. 4 a.m. to 9 central, here on Prairie Public. And that's a wrap for this edition of Main Street. Remember, you can listen to this interview again and all editions of Main Street at prairiepublic.org. Tomorrow on the show, we'll explore how teachers are trained for the classroom in North Dakota with Dr. Yvonne Cannon from Mayville State University. And we'll dive into North Dakota's sheep industry with Dr. Travis Hoffman. He is an assistant professor and extension sheep specialist at North Dakota State University. That's coming up tomorrow on Main Street. Thanks for joining us and have a great rest of your day.